Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. Saigon, by myself, I met a Vietnamese man who showed me the scars on his stomach. And he said, but, but no problem. I mean, I was freaking out. He said, no problem. You know, you almost killed me, but now we are friends. Now we live now and now we can be friends. And I'm going, holy mackerel. And that was just the beginning of hundreds and hundreds of people that I have met. And mostly I'm speaking of enemy most or former enemy, mostly, or the guys on the other team, as you like to say, but (laughs) I've met so many now and they all are so open and friendly. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome back to another segment of Stigma Free Vet Zone. We are in our continuing segment with just a great, great guest, John Wesley Fisher, who is a Vietnam veteran and an author. He has already taken us through his experiences before the military, why he joined, and of course, some of the really, really, I hope I say this okay, John, profound imprint uh, that war has left on his mind and his soul, and, and some of the things that he experienced in, in response to his uh, military experience when he returned home. A lot of the travels he did to Australia, New Zealand, around the world, Central America, across most of the United States, his experience when he was confronted with nightmares and flashbacks and many of the other experiences he has had, which we have spoken about and exchanged in the first two segments. So now John has come back. He's got a new book coming out, Docto RX, which we are going to speak about today. But it's not just about Docto being the city or the place in Vietnam where John experienced some of his major combat experiences. Rx being, looked it up in Greek and Roman, Rx being relief, healing. So it's Docto Relief is the the title of John's new book, which will be coming out in September. We're going to speak a little bit about that, actually quite a bit about that. But I I want our our veteran listeners especially to to know that this this is a travel guide, but it's also, if you listen very, very carefully, you'll see some of the very, very healing reactions, techniques, experiences that John offers for those who travel back to Vietnam, but also those who who might travel back vicariously by listening to what John has to say. And there's a couple of words at the end of this, I hope you all listen for them, that I, I, I think are very, very powerful 
that John will be sharing with us. And then he'll finish up with just a little bit of something that he has focused on after two marriages that uh, ended in divorce, his third marriage, and what he does centering on the, the, the military family as the center of health care with his wife. So Lindsley is the beneficiary of a lot of John's experiences. So let's go back to the beautiful state of Maine and welcome in John Wesley Fisher. Good morning, John. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. Let's just jump right in. Let's get right back to the story because I've been waiting to hear more and, and follow you. And, and of course, I've read your book and it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful piece. You have decided to go back to Vietnam. I'm not sure. This is where I get confused. 14th tour time or 15th time. And so take, tell us what, what number this is going back and what the purpose of this book, this voyage was and, and the results of, of the book that you wrote. Well, the solo trip was designed so that I could just really be on my own and, and do some of the things that I do, wanted to do that you can't really do with a group. I will say that I started going back to Vietnam in 2003 when after I'd just finished writ, writing my first book. And really, I wanted another project to work on my healing. And I was divorced then and remarried by then. And I just needed something else to do. And I have a, had a Vietnamese friend and he actually said, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I, I really don't know. He said, well, let's go back to Vietnam. I haven't been back. He came over in 1975, believe it or not, before the war was over in Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnamese were still fighting. He got a scholarship to go to school in Canada, and he's now a, a scientist. Turns out he got a job relocation, and he couldn't go back with me. And I was really, when I decided I was going to go with him, which was the hardest decision I'd ever made, by the way, I. Um, didn't know quite how to go about it. And he was going to lay it out for me. He had family there and everything. We were going to really have a, a nice trip together. But when he said he couldn't go, I still wanted to go after making the decision. I found a veterans group out of Tucson, Arizona, and I went back with them once. I went back with them the second time, 2004, because I wanted to write a book, a second book about a guy who goes back to Vietnam. And then I went back a third time with a different group called Soldier's Heart with Dr. Ed Tick. And in 2009, I had veterans talking to me about traveling back. And I said, OK, well, let's let's plan a trip. I'll lead it. And I've been leading trips ever since. So in 2012, I did lead a group trip that year, later in that year. But at the beginning of the year, I did a six-week solo. And that was my eighth trip back. Now I've been back 14 different times. So that was your question, I think. Well, it was my question. And it's really fascinating. But I, I, I want to interject just a little point here for, for our audience. These are all healing experiences. So Very even though so. they're healing for you, when you're taking other veterans back, you also get the added benefit of knowing that you're helping them. There's something therapeutic in taking other veterans back. But let's get back to the solo trip that you took. It goes all the way from the Gulf of Thailand up to the Chinese border. And just get, just jump in wherever you want, John, to take off. Okay. Well, I left on the day before Christmas Eve, 2011, and my wife decided that she we were living in South Carolina at the time, and my family is all west. Her family was all north, and she has a lot of family and a lot of grandchildren. So she really wanted to go back, go up for Christmas with the family, and I really um, it, it didn't call me that year. The weather was not good, and it, I just didn't feel like it. And she said, well, you, why don't you go visit your family? Well, instead, I decided to go to Vietnam, which actually is also my family. And so, I mean, I know so many people there and have so many friends that it was really inviting to go back there during that time. 
So I flew back, and believe it or not, I flew out on New Year on Christmas Eve. We crossed the international dateline. By the time I got to Vietnam, I missed Christmas altogether, which was just fine with me. But the, it was over, <laughs> and and I got there on December 26th. And so I had to, I have my guide that usually helps me lead my trips who lives in Saigon in Ho Chi Minh City is what they call it now and he invited me to come stay a week at his with his family in in Ho Chi Minh City so I did and I ended up doing a little work I'm a doctor of chiropractic and every time I go over there I do clinics and everybody always asks me if I can do some lecturing and speaking and so forth but I never have time with our group trips so I I uh, spent the time doing that on this week while I was there and they would come and get me I spoke lectured at university. I did clinics of disabled Agent Orange victims, and it was really quite fun. But I planned the rest of my trip then to start in the Mekong Delta. had a very close friend, lived on one of the islands, a former Viet Cong soldier. His story is very interesting, by the way. He was a school teacher, and he was only 18 years old, but he was the most educated person in the village, and so he was teaching school. But these villages in the Mekong Delta are on islands. And so a lot of the students came from other islands and they would taxi over in a water taxi and then they would end up sleeping at the school. So he came to, to work one morning and realized and discovered that the school had been bombed overnight by B-52, American B-52s, and the school was no longer and a lot of the children in the school were killed. And that really angered him and he decided to leave teaching and he joined the army he had a choice, you know, he could have joined the Arvin army. He decided to join the army that that would fight against the people that, that bombed the school. And so that's what he did. And uh, I visited him with, I, I took an extra guide with me so that I could speak with him because he doesn't speak English. First time I'd been together with him numerous times, but this is the first time I had a one-on-one -on -one with him, of course, with the interpreter. And it was just unbelievably fabulous. We spent two days together. We did a lot of things. Uh, we did some fun things during the day, but the evening hours, we sat down with a with a jug of rice wine in the middle of the table. He had his mandolin, and we just sat there and chatted stories after stories, and it was just totally phenomenal. This guy, the training this guy got as a Viet Cong soldier already living in the jungle, the jungle-type training he got was far superior and much more extensive and longer than the four months that I had training back in the States before I was shipped over. We both hit the front lines at the same time, but he'd already been in the army for a year training. And uh, so it was really uh, an amazing experience talking with him. You know, what, what he really said, what his basic intent message was, is that, you know, the American soldiers did, just didn't seem to have the interest in the war that the communist soldiers had. I mean, they didn't have seem to have a mission, is what he said. He said that they were easy to take on one on one, but they had the machinery and the technology that really wiped us out. And we lost the war because of their advanced technology, not because of our the momentum or the uh, attitude of the soldiers. So I spent the time there, and then I traveled onward. I did a homestay on an island there, and with a with this guide, I kept the guide through the all of the Mekong Delta. Not my guide, by the way. My guide couldn't go because my venture was planned with such last-minute detail that he was already booked up. Plus, Tet was coming on soon, and he's a Catholic, so Christmas was important to him. So he, he couldn't take me, but he housed me for a week, but he couldn't come with me 
he found somebody that could, and this guy was pretty good too. And we drove along and numerous different people over the, over the trip. Uh, I met one family that had within the family, it had an Arvin soldier, a Viet Cong soldier and a peace activist or a, a resistant person that didn't join either army and stayed hidden, hidden out the whole time, didn't want to fight. That was an amazing experience too, because they get all of their opinions. And you know what? After the war was over, the, the Arvin soldier had to spend two years in prison. And he then married his wife, who was a Viet Cong soldier during the war. I mean, it's, it's amazing what this civil war, how it separated families, just like it did in our country with our civil war, I suppose. But it was the after the effects of the war. This family was, you would never know that they all had different opinions of uh, different sides of the war during the war. Now living together in harmony, it was just phenomenal to be uh, spend the time with them. And then here I am, an American soldier. We had all parts of the war covered in our breakfast meetings and so forth. It was really uh, quite an event. Also went to a place called Buchuk, which was invaded by the Cameron Rouge. After the Vietnam, after the American part of the Vietnam War and Cameron Rouge came in, uh, crossed the border in the Mekong Delta and just totally killed everybody in the village. There were like 700 and some people. It was just ugly and phenomenal. And they have a museum and a memorial. I spent time there. I actually had quite an, you know, my job as an RTO, as a radio telephone operator, is to call in artillery. If I have, front, you know, face-to-face -face combat with somebody uh, while I'm there during my year, it did happen numerous times. But I can, can't tell you how many I know I was involved in in killing when it was in that kind of a situation. But with my radio, I never knew. And when I was sitting there at the Buchuk Memorial and they had this they had this mausoleum in the middle with glass shelves that glass covering the shelves all the way around it and you and they put all the skulls of all the people that were killed and they classified them in age groups like from over 60 over 40 20 and then the children and the babies and all those skulls were in that thing and I go oh my god i mean it was just so horrendous to witness that. And then I realized these, these are the things that haunt me. These, are the, these were the blind kills that my radio calling in artillery were involved in that I would see, see in my dreams. And I would see these faces, these, all these people and all the time. And I had no idea who they were, but I knew that I was responsible because of the artillery that I called in on them. And there they were in the glass. I mean, it was a symbol, but it was just phenomenally healing for me to see that. And I had no idea why I was interested in going in the first place, but that was the reason, apparently. I didn't realize it till I was there. I moved onward. I, we traveled onward that day. We went down to Hafen, which is on the, the Gulf of the Thailand. So the Gulf of Thailand comes in. It's a, it's a part of the Mekong, and it separates Vietnam and Cambodia at that point. The, it goes in the Mekong River. It travels for thousands of miles, goes clear up into the, the Himalayan mountains. And it's Himalayan. Am I saying that right? Or Tibetan? I think it's Tibet. But anyway, it, it's a big river and it separates many countries. And so this is the entrance of the Gulf of Thailand into Cambodia and Vietnam. 
And John, uh, John, John, let me stop you for just for a minute. We're speaking with John Wesley Fisher, who's a Vietnam veteran and author, and he's sharing his experience going back to Vietnam, intentionally on his own to uh, travel the country. Just want to go back to this this event in Cambodia. What year are we talking about? It was 1970. I believe it was 78 that the Vietnamese finally got involved into it. It was 77. So it was several years after the American yeah. involvement or after the end of the Vietnam War, which was 75. Yeah. American involvement ended in 73. But then the war ended in 75. And then two years later, they're involved in this Cameron Rouge thing. Now, yeah. Vietnam, by the way, doesn't usually invade other countries. In fact, it never has invaded another country before. But during that particular time period, when the Cambodian soldiers crossed over into the Mekong, over into the Vietnamese side of the Mekong and did this atrocity, the Vietnamese got involved. And they went over and within two weeks, the war was over. The Vietnamese had taken over Phnom Penh and ousted the, the Pol Pot, who was the leader at that time, who was doing the uh, genocide on all on 25 percent of the pe- of the population. It was a, it was horrible. This, this went on to be the, the title of the movie, The Killing Fields, right? Yes. Yes. OK. Yeah. Well, I just want to I just want to keep us up in the year so we know where we are, 1977, 78. So now we go back and you're you're back in Vietnam. You're still in the southwest geographically uh, coming out of uh, the Mekong Delta and heading north. Right. So I went back to Saigon. I mean, I, I visited some other places. I went to I went to the main Cantor, which is one of the biggest floating markets in the world and experienced that and met some other people. And it was it was Mekong Delta was I'd been there before, but never extensively traveled it like that. I only was there for a week. Then I went up to back up to Saigon and I booked a flight for Pleiku. Now, Pleiku was the central spot where I was. My base camp was and Campanari was there and never spent much time there myself. But the airport flying in there, it looks much the same. It's modernized now, but it's still in the same place, the same runways and everything. And all that's missing is all the can- the Constantino wire and everything is all gone. But it's basically the same place. And I went, I, I had a prearranged via email, a guide in Contum. And uh, I found him in the internet. He has a he has a company that he takes tourists on little trips and so forth. And this is kind of, this is rural Vietnam, by the way. Americans really aren't, aren't very favored. To, they don't like Americans to come there because there was a huge indigenous population there. We, we called, they, they were called mountain yards by the French. Wonderful people. And the, mostly the Americans remember the mountain yards as being the guides for the Americans fighting against the Viet Cong and the NVA up in the mountains in the Central Highlands. But there was another facet of the mountain yards that wasn't as well known to the Americans, but on the eastern side of the of the valley there, the Central Highlands goes through this valley from Pleiku, Kantum, Docto, and there's mountain ranges on both sides. We fought mostly in the Western Mountains, which were on the Cambodian border for obvious reasons. The Ho Chi Minh Trail was there. But the Western side was called VC Mountain, which I didn't know until much later in my travels. VC Mountain, because the mountain yards were most were almost all Viet Cong soldiers inducted. Their families started being inducted into the VC Army back against the French. And so they still had allegiance to the communist side. So... I was not allowed, make a long story short, my guide said, you know, you're not going to be able to go to the 
the Western side because they don't let anybody in there, let alone Americans, because they're so afraid that the mountain yards might continue to side. Mountain yards aren't known to like Vietnamese. And so they are still prone to side with maybe Americans if they go back there. I mean, I doubt it if they would, but I, I'm telling you that some of it has happened in the past where Americans have gone and tried to rescue the mountain yards and bring them back. We have some colonies here in the U.S., by the way, of mountain yards in the North Carolina in particular is the largest one that were brought over here by some of those Americans. So that's why it's pretty tough for us to go over there and, and just do it. I had to have this special guide. And he was from Kontum. He was a child when I was in, in Vietnam. He found out that I could go to the other side, B.C. Mountain. I'd been over to the B.C. Mountain w during the war, but I didn't spend a lot of time there. But I had been there, and so that was acceptable for my project, which was to hike, backpack in the former, some of the former jungles that I had served. So I opted to do that one. We went with the guide by motorbike out to a mountain yard village where we parked a bike and we started on a trek up the hills into the mountains. We ran into other, visa, other mountain yard villages. Some of them actually had had people that sided with the Americans during that time. And some with the Viet Cong, all living harmoniously in the same village now. And we've hiked up even further to where there was a special guy up there that lived by himself up in the mountains. His wife actually lived down below in the village where she worked in the rice pad fields and so forth, had a son and grandsons down there. He was about my age and uh, he was about five foot tall, maybe, maybe, and wonderful man. I got talking with him and through my other guide who spoke eight languages, by the way, six of them were mountain yard dialects. He translated for me some of my questions that I would have had of this man. We stayed in his Hooch, the first night because it was raining, we all decided that even though I'd slept in the rain a lot in Vietnam, it, we all decided it would be all right if we stayed in the hooch. And I didn't mind. There'd be still one more night out in the in the bush. And uh, we stayed there. And we one evening, he had a couple of his other friends come over. We were Viet Cong. And we all sat in a circle and we shared a little rice wine and started t talking. And, and, and I started asking some questions of these guys, all of them former soldiers uh, for the Viet Cong. And I asked this one guy, I said, so first of all, icebreaker, did you fight in the war? You know, and when it was translated, he looked confused. You go, he looked and he, and he says, you know, there is no war. And I said, well, yeah, no, there isn't any war now, but how about a long time ago against when the Americans were here? And he, and he took some time to answer. He really didn't want to answer it. And finally he said, you know, I live today and today there is no war. And that was, that was his answer. Really, they don't talk about the war. They don't even go anywhere near the war anymore because why? It doesn't serve them in any in the least. And so consequently, they are so relaxed about it. They don't experience any kind of PTSD. They, this is a cultural thing. And it doesn't matter if you're mountain yard, if you're Catholic, if you're Buddhist, no matter what it is, the culture in Vietnam lives in the moment. They don't dwell in the past, no matter what the past does. They cope with it, deal with it, but they move onward because they know tomorrow will still be in the past if that's where you live now. If you live in the past in the moment, you will live in the past in the future, and they want the future to be free and open for new opportunities. And so even the mountain yards, who are very primitive, not educated in any way, except 
you know, I mean, they're mother nature educated. Boy, this guy took us on a backpack that was unbelievable. And he had his machete. He's chopping through the woods, the jungle and making a path for us. He had to, he, he laughed because I kept getting hung up in his, in the bushes, you know, cause I had a backpack and I'm almost six feet tall and I'm getting hung up there. And he laughed and started chopping up higher over his head. And after a while he turned around and he looked at me and he didn't say a word. And it, it's like a light went on and a light went on and he, he's all of a sudden, like he decided where he was going to take me. And he starts switchbacking up this mountain road, this mountain, making his own little road for us. We finally get to a spot where it looked like there was former dwellings in there. I couldn't, it was really hard to tell. It was really in ruin. And he told my other guide who started crying before he told me what he said. He said that uh, this used to be his one of his camps and it was bombed. It was actually shot up by helicopter one night, uh, American helicopters, and everybody died but him. <laughs> here we are standing here. And I said, right here? And he goes, and, and my guy said, yep, you're probably standing on some of the graves right here. And oh, it was just unbelievable. I had carried a package of incense with me here for doing some ceremony. I like doing that where I go, where I can just light some incense and relax and sit back and, and try to reflect and meditate. I lit that whole package of incense. I passed out equal number, you know, an equal proportion to each of it, each of them, two of three of us all together. We sat there until the incense burned down. Much must have taken about a half hour. Nobody said a word. It was a phenomenal experience to share with that man. He had never been there since that incident had happened. He never returned there, had no, re didn't want to. And he took me there. What an honor it was. We, we ended up bivouacking there overnight. And here I am sleeping with a former enemy, Viet Cong soldier, and a, and a man who was a child in Khantoum during the times that I was there during the war as my guide now. And we slept there overnight. They made it made me breakfast in the morning, and off we went to to finish our our backpack the next day. But what a night! Oh my God, it was it was really one of the highlight healing experiences of my life. And I my job, I believe, getting home from Vietnam is to find all of the possible natural holistic techniques and ideas on how I can heal after this war. I think, you know, no matter what kind of treatments you do, I'm not sure that we'll ever be totally out of the woods, out of the jungle, so to speak, by the end of this lifetime. But what we do while we're here, I think is really important. And no matter how we end up treating it, that stuff is still tattooed on the brain. It's not going to go away, but we can really come to a full sense and understanding about what in the world happened that I was I was just I had just turned 20 years old when I was drafted by my country to go do this. I had no idea and no recollection that I was really going to fight in a war in my whole life. I never dreamed that I would be fighting in a war. That's just not something that I would choose to do. But here I was going and even though that was only one year in my life every single year after that there is not a day that goes by I don't think about it sometime. Something, something in Vietnam. Now I have great memories. I think about those too now, and mostly those. But unbelievable experience to do that one and to spend that time with that man. 
I'll never see him again, probably. His name was Bull, B-O-L. He was a Bonar Mountain Yard indigenous person, one of my mentors. We're speaking with John Wesley Fisher. He's a Vietnam veteran and an author. John, a couple of things you bring up, which are really, really fascinating to me. You mentioned Bull, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned him by name, who was a former Viet Cong soldier. And you're actually sleeping overnight in the jungle with a former, or I never call them enemies. I always call them the other team or, or you know, opposition forces. But enemy is, for the sake of our audience, sleeping with the enemy in the jungle, triple canopy, I assume. It's dark. Once those lights go down, I mean, there have to be so many things going through your mind, so many different thoughts. But you go back to them mentioning, and I believe, uh, as I read in the book, it was actually Bowl, B-O-L, who said the war was a long time ago, and we live today, and today there is no war. When he first said that to you, here you've been 30 or 40 years with this on your mind every day. How did that statement shock you? I mean, you don't just absorb that and say, oh, yeah, you're right. It's all done. I mean, that that is probably one of the most profound statements that any of us, especially as combat soldiers, could hear and, and actually logically figure that out to be correct. Well, as I said before, I, this was my eighth trip back. I have met many, many former enemy in my eight trips back already. And so I had heard similar things like this before, not ever from a mountain yard soldier, but it was it was not shocking, but at the same time, it was just really profound that that would be his first and only statement about the war. I mean, really, he didn't want to talk about it. He did it all through his actions. When he took me up to this place, you know, I think that was a kind of a healing for him. And he didn't even realize that that's what he was setting himself up for, I'm sure, because he doesn't believe he needs a healing. You know, I mean, he's he lives now. And now there is no war. And so uh, that's that was his his thing. It was it was an honor to have him want to take me there. But it was also an honor that he went there for himself, too, and stayed there. I mean, he it was, must have been hard for him to, to head in that direction. I, I wonder sometimes in our experience that one of the things that you express and you write about in your book, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but this does stick with us. Every day you wake up and it's there. And I wonder how much of that is, and you mentioned this earlier, when they referred to, when the Viet Cong had referred to Americans as not really emotionally involved in the war. They were there, but it was their technology that was winning. Do you think a lot of us are haunted because we didn't believe in the mission? And I mean, the things we did were just uh, incredibly barbaric as soldiers. And I don't want to go off too far on that tangent. But if we had believed in the mission, would it have been better for us and easier for us to come back and recollect it? And, and one other thing you could continue on with is this whole idea of finding holistic healing resolutions for our experiences, as opposed to the stigmatizing of it's a mental illness. Well, is it a mental illness or is it a matter of having to come to an understanding of how to deal with the reactions we're having that were so unexpected? And you put that so beautifully. Maybe you could speak a little bit more about, about that, some of the different ones, because I know that you found nature to be very healing, traveling to be very healing. You still do. A little bit of isolation and traveling on your own seemed to be good, except if you had your dog Skippy with you. But you have these, I think, are very, very important topics, this healing, this holistic healing, and going out and having the courage to find them, to look for them, not sitting in a bottle of whiskey, not sitting in a basement, but out there actively looking for your own healing. And one last thing, you also mentioned that this is there every day, but you get used to it. Is there such a thing as it haunts us until we take control of it? 
it. It doesn't go away. But once we take control of the reactions, then we're able to live with them and they don't control us. Uh, it, does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I don't, I've never really felt like this was a mental disability. I mean, it sure messes with your emotions and it messes with your mental capacity, but that's not the cause. That's the effect. And I really feel that, you know, we are called human beings and we're called human beings for a reason because it's two different factors. We're human. Somebody says, well, you're only human, you know. I think if you're only human, you know, you're six feet under. That's what it is. A being part is the life, the spirit. And something happens to the connection between the human and the being during this conflict, this war that, we're in, that we get involved in. I mean, the spirit says, what's going on? This isn't natural. This isn't right to be killing each other. And you become estranged from your own spirit, which messes with your mind. And all of this stuff is just so crazy. And the medical profession at this point in time, and I'm not trying to put them down, I've had some excellent counseling and very important counseling, but I've never allowed them to drug me, never allowed them to, to get into my brain and tell, them, tell me that this is a mental condition or a, you know, it's not a mental condition. Definitely my emotions have changed over the years, but it was because I became estranged from my very own spirit or my being. Was it gone? No, it wasn't gone. But did I recognize it? Did I understand it? Did I feel it? I don't think so. And it wasn't until I started investigating. I mean, I'm a backpacker from way back. I'm a bicycler from way back. I love to get out in nature on solo trips and really let my mind just go. And to me, that's our mother out there. You know, they call it mother nature. It's for a reason. That's our mother. That's our mother being our mother spirit out there. And that's expressed, you know, without any emotions or without any mental problems or hangups, right? Mother nature, she just, they're giving it to us. And that's where I get a lot of relief and including in Vietnam. That's why I needed to do this solo trip because when I travel with the groups, I usually, you know, I, I do things for the group and we're not alone in nature very much. It's very difficult to get alone. By the way, it is extremely difficult to be alone in Vietnam. There's so many people in this country, but you get up into the mountains, you get up into the outskirts, you know, where, where they're just little villages and so forth, you can do it. And that's what I did with this one. I think it's very important to do these kinds of things to get away from treating the brain. You know, your brain is okay. Just let it relax. Just let it relax and get out there in nature and, and write, write your remote, write your feelings. I started off writing novels because I just wanted to write all the things. I didn't want really to expose myself as being the person that experienced all these things. So I put it in novel form. But are all those my stories in there? You bet they are. And also some other people's stories are in there too. Stories that were told to me even while I was in Vietnam on a chopper. When you get stop at a chopper pad and you got get on and then they have to make another stop on the way in and, and they load bodies onto the under the chopper and they start, these guys start telling you their stories and everything. All of a sudden they become your stories. They become part of my nightmares. So I had to write about those too. And that's what I did. I had patients, you know, that would have stories to me. And I didn't tell my patients that I was a Vietnam veteran for a long, long time, but they would tell me. And I heard one guy tell me about being captured and put into a bamboo tiger cage. And when I heard about that, his experience in that one, that that started haunting me like crazy. So I wrote my second book. I, 
my character got involved in, he got captured and put in a bamboo tiger cage. And it was a very healing experience for me. These things are important to do, I think. So the writing, the getting, escaping in nature, getting some appropriate counseling without them labeling you as PTSD. I don't think that's what it is. You know, I think we're, I think we're, you wrote a book, Soulless, and I think that's what it is. We're, you know, we just become, we're not soulless, but we're, we're estranged from our soul. So it seems like we're soulless. I, I think that's an excellent way of putting it because I can tell that, John, because when you say it, when you say estranged from our soul, I identify with it. You know, and if you listen to things, you'll have significant moments where you identify with what's either presented to you or said to you. But w- w- one thing that I remember, and let me know if this makes sense to you. Many of the veterans, including myself, when we came home, were stuck in that moment of war. And we got physically older, but emotionally stayed in that time at war, some for 50 years, some up to this day. But it seemed to me like my mind had absorbed so much in the way of dismantling what my soul was about and replacing with something just horrible and ugly and everything else that I didn't know who I was. But because of that, that volume of experience, my mind felt like it was a computer that had shut down and it couldn't absorb any more information and it couldn't resolve the information it had already absorbed. And so when we come home, the mental health profession was very good at saying, well, you have a mental illness. So, you know, we're in control of the mind and we're going to take care of you. Well, right off the bat, you're in trouble because the first thing I'm going to do is say, no, I don't have, I can't tell anybody I have a mental illness. I can't tell anybody this. But when you, with the way you're explaining it is something that I've come to realize too. And that would be, it's educational. You've had these experiences, you've had these, these results, these reactions. How do you educate yourself to understand what they are and to resolve them. Is, is that a fair statement? I think it is. It's a great one. Yeah. The other thing that, that I remember, and this is what I would like the audience to, to really pay attention to on this. When we were in Vietnam, I was an infantry soldier and we flew in Hueys on combat assaults right at treetop level. And I flew over the entire country, wherever we went, just seeing the tops of the, of the jungle. And, and so, I mean, there were times if you let your mind wander, you'd say, wow, what a beautiful place to backpack. But that's all. I had never seen a rice paddy, but I had heard there were rice paddies there. Vietnam, to me, was geographically a place that was covered in jungle and covered in, in rice paddies. One of the two. There was nothing else called the people underneath there. There were nothing called the cultures. There were no mountain yards. There, were, there was only survival. And I think if the audience, especially the veterans who who participated in that war or any war would understand this, you're really seeing the soul of the uh, beneath the the triple canopy. You're seeing the soul of what's going on on the ground. And so you've got a completely different interaction that's healing your soul. But I it's it's stunning to me to listen to you talk about what's actually under that, because I had always thought of Vietnam as just jungle rice paddies. You know, when I was in Vietnam, I saw much the same. And I saw a lot of rice paddies, but they were mostly smaller village rice paddies, you know, that the mountain yard villages uh, used for their substance to survive. And I didn't really know Vietnamese people. You know, the first time I ever had Vietnamese food was 15 years after the fact in Denver, Colorado. I'd never had, I didn't hardly have any contact with the Vietnamese. Saw them a couple of times, you know, they were selling Coke and, Cokes and stuff, you know, at the, at the convoy stops. But basically, I didn't know Vietnamese. And, you know, the, the other soldiers, especially some of the really younger soldiers, who some of them who even joined, really, I mean, they tr- try to cheat you in basic training to hate these people. I mean, they even 
started calling them Charlie and Gooks and giving them everything to dehumanize who they were, that they're not even human beings. You're just going there to kill them. And really, I had no clue about the Vietnamese until I got there and started meeting them. You know, the first time, I don't know if I told this story in this first segment, but the first time I walked down through Saigon by myself, I met a Vietnamese man who showed me the scars on his stomach. And he said, but, but no problem. I mean, I was freaking out. He said, no problem. You know, you almost killed me, but now we are friends. Now we live now and now we can be friends. And I'm going, holy mackerel. And that was just the beginning of hundreds and hundreds of people that I have met. And mostly I'm speaking of enemy, most, or former enemy mostly, or f- the guys on the other team, as you like to say. But <laughs> I've met so many now and they all are so open and friendly and you know, we need to, we need to really, they don't, they just seem to do this naturally. But I, I find for myself every morning, I have to get up and spend some quiet time to get to myself. You can call it meditation. Sometimes it is meditation. Sometimes I'm just staring out at the, at the lake. I li- live up here real close to a, a lake in Dermascotta Lake in Maine. And, and I just go to the shore and I just space out on the lake. And that is important time for me in the morning to get started because it sets me right. It sets me right with nature. And then I can move on through the rest of the day. I do yoga in the mornings, most mornings. And not this morning. I had to get up early to be on the show. But uh, Sorry I, about that. No problem. No problem. But I, I do a lot of things. You know, I, I'm always prepping myself. I try to read things that really stimulate me and help me to understand more about peace and 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 you know it's it's just it's important for us to do that if we don't do that and we just start off in our day around here especially if you live in the city and by the way i've chosen not to live in a city anymore i live out in the woods here in in maine and it's just really a, a delightful pleasant peaceful situation during this we're in covid pandemic right now and this is a perfect place for me i feel like every day is the same anyway no matter if if it we're isolating or not, I'm right here. And it's just, these things are important. So for me, this trip is something that I had dreamed about for a long time, but I had been so involved in leading groups, being with groups, leading groups, that I really didn't have the time to get out and do these things by myself. So I did it on the solo trip. John, I'd I'd like to go back on one thing because I think it's very important for many of the veterans, including myself, who experienced this. Even if there were a mission, if you believed as they did at the time, I I forget about the domino theory and stopping communism and all of these things, even if you had a hearty belief in that, when you get to being involved in the war, as you said, this hatred of the other person, this changes the mission. When you're out in the jungle and there's guys from the opposing side that are uh, that are taking shots at you, that are setting up ambushes, that are actually a direct directly trying to take your life, you start to hate those people for doing this. We have to get that that son of a gun who's who's trying to kill us, who's who's taking pot shots at us, who's over in that tree. And it becomes this thing of being focused on the individual who's doing this to you. You're going to do it to them first. And that, I think, is one of the things you come back and, and horrified, at, at least mentally I was, that we would get involved in it. I never came home thinking we have to stop a Ho Chi Minh. I always came home, you know, we had to stop that guy, that, that son of a gun who was behind that tree who's going to kill us or something. And so it really became that mission, which is disgusting. And I, I think that's where you get back to that whole idea of killing these people 
just because what Albert Schweitzer really defined for me was very healing, and that was the will to live. You know, you had your own will to live that you put in in superior order to anyone else's. So uh, does that help at all? I mean, does that make sense? It it didn't take long for me to figure out that if I didn't kill them, they would kill me. And so that was totally my mission. I mean, it was selfish, right? But that was, that's what it was. And that was the, I never anticipated what it would feel like or, or that I wanted to kill somebody. I mean, I was drafted and I'm not really prone to wanting to do that kind of violent action. And so I did not have, I did not get sucked into the basic training when they told me about these people and what I had to do. And I, and I said, you know, these guys are just a bunch of jerks. And I didn't, I didn't get off on it, but there were people, there were young people, especially really young people that joined, that got into it and got sucked into it. And they really did enjoy it. Some of them did, but I don't think that was the majority of guys. And they did not, still didn't have a mission. You know, I mean, it was just in there to be shooting a rifle at something. And, and that was, to me, that's not, that's not what it was all about. For me, I got into it and all of a sudden I realized, hey, if I don't respond, I'm not going home. And, you know, honestly, there were times when I thought it would be better not to go home. But at, at some point I decided I wanted to go home and, and I needed to survive. And that's yeah. how I did it. Right. And I think that's a good point because it really was about survival. It wasn't about any particular mission. So I want to ask you this, John, we're, we're closing in on an hour. If we were to invite you back, and I'll tell you why, we want to talk a little bit more and finish up the hour for today. But going back to my statement about thinking that Vietnam was just jungle and it was rice paddies and that was it. Your book goes on to explain the beautiful, beautiful geography and geology of this country and and these, I think, world class or world record caves that are beneath the ground and the monuments and the temples and the culture that are so, so beautiful. I don't want to miss that, but I don't think that we'll fit that all in. Would, would you be willing to come back and, and share that with us? So, so that, because I think there, there's one little segment I'd like to close up with today that I think is really valuable to you, to me and to our audience. What do you think? Absolutely. And I, I would uh, be glad to do that. I'll just give you a little intro to that uh, okay. se- section in that from play, from the central highlands. Then I flew to Da Nang and I've been to Da Nang a lot. I have a lot of friends that live in Hoi An, which is just south of Da Nang, about a 30 minute drive. And I spent some time there. There are some beautiful, beautiful monuments and some of them built in to be balancing energy balance for the war that happened in that area. I went from there up to um, Dong Hoi, which is north of the DMZ, where the largest cave in the world, Song Dong Cave, is. At the time that I was there, it was still not open for tourists to go in there and check it out. Now it's still quite an expensive tour if you want to do it, but uh, it is open. There are other caves. The third largest cave in the world is also there, and the largest river cave. I hopped on a little boat and went down on the river cave uh, through this giant cave with all the stalagmites and, and oh, it was just ph- phenomenal. Then from there up to Hanoi, I spent Tet in a small village in Vietnam in Hanoi area that had been bombed during the war. I was the first white man ever to walk, walk in this village, let alone stay in the village for half a week uh, during Tet. Then from there, I went up to Sapa, up into the northern territories, up on the close to the Chinese border, Lao Cai, and had some very eventful experiences up in there. There are more indigenous people, but 
By the way, the majority of the people that live in Vietnam are indigenous, but you don't see them in the cities. You see them when you go up north, and there are villages everywhere, helter-skelter in the mountains up there in, in the northern area. And that was quite a beautiful thing, too. Did some trekking and homestaying up in there as well. But in, in your book, I mean, I read this. There's a lot more to it. You saw the beautiful temple. Uh, I think it was Minthan Pagoda right there in Pleiku where you were. You spoke to a woman who I think is certainly worth speaking about. You met her when she was very old, Mrs. Quake, I believe her name was, uh, who mm-hmm. lost most of her family and how forgiving she was and how she wanted to welcome Americans back and forgive them. But you said it was a blessing to know this woman because she welcomes them back to the scene to help them heal. So, I mean, uh, there are so many things that are yet to come in, in this in this trip of yours, the places you've seen. But you also mentioned, and we're going to get to these two words that I mentioned at the very beginning, because we've talked about, you know, the, this idea of staying alive, the, 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 the guilt and all of these things. And those two words are in your book and, and you end the book with them. And they were forgiveness and love. Were, were two words that are very, very powerful. And I think that's one of the things that are very, mental health doesn't address forgiveness as a, as a, a, a logical step, a realistic step. But I think it's important for, for veterans to know that. But you go through all these people and villages and travel that are helping you to better forgive, better understand. And you're witnessing forgiveness. You're witnessing love. You're witnessing welcoming back. These are things that you could not have written yourself because they're, they're external stimulus that are coming your way from people that are helping you heal. And I think if you come back and share that with us, the people, uh, the audience is going to, even if they don't ever want to go back and, and smell Vietnam or hear the voice, they will heal just knowing what you're sharing with them. So let, let's leave that. But there's one thing that's very, 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 very important to me because I'm guilty of this. And I was very, very bad on forgetting about my family when I came home. It was all about me. It was about my anger. It was about my emotions. And I wasn't even aware for maybe three or four decades that I had not taken into consideration the health of my family, my brothers and sisters and, and, and that sort of thing. You have experienced the same with, with two marriages, but now you have a marriage where you do something very important, not just about t- doing your yoga and uh, paddleboarding, I think it's called, and, and traveling and seeing nature. You'd make a very intentional step that you take with your wife, Lindsley. Could you tell us about that? When we first were married, I was from Colorado and she was from Maine. And we met on a, actually, we met in Greece on one of Dr. Tick's spiritual pilgrimages. But uh, at any rate, we decided to hook up. And when we did, we chose a neutral spot to live in South Carolina, uh, away from both our exes. She had an ex, a Vietnam veteran ex, by the way. And I had two exes in Colorado. And so decided that we would set up our new camp in South Carolina. We lived there for eight years before finally moving up here to Maine. But at any rate, I realized that, you know, there were some still rough periods and I was falling back into a pattern that I had with my other wives and I could feel it. And I thought, what the heck? I don't want to do this again. I'm not, you know, I'll never marry again. That's what I said before the third marriage, by the way. I didn't want to have to do that again. And so I went to the vet center in South Carolina. I didn't want to go to the VA because I knew the vet center would not push drugs on me. Maybe they would recommend me to see somebody else, but they didn't. I found a nice gal there that that I could just chat with, and she really helped me a lot. And so when we moved to Maine, I decided to continue with that. About once a month when I'm in town, I go to see him. Once in a while, Lindsley will come with me, but it's just to talk about things and 
he's Scott is my therapist and he's just an amazing guy. He's read my books. He's just, he's just really given me some insights and some of that, but he's also given Lindsley some insights on veterans and their behavior and so forth and why they, they think the way they do and why they do some of the things that don't seem appropriate and so forth. And so that's been very helpful for her as well. But I just feel it's important for me to just stay in touch because I don't want to go backwards. You know, I'm heading forwards and I've gone up and down, you know, through this whole process with everything going on and I'm ready for just to stay up and keep going up. I don't want it. I don't want to have to start over again. And, and right now I have to tell you that my marriage and we've been married for 12 and a half years now, my marriage now is it's the best marriage and the best part of this marriage that I've ever had. I mean, so we've grown together over the years. And even though, you know, it's so powerful when you first get married and you're so in love, it's even better now because do you, do you I've think, stayed on you, top of it. Yeah, right. You have stayed on top of it, but consciously stayed on top of it. You have actually made that a focus that that inside the home, inside the house, inside the marriage, that be part of the center of, of the healthcare unit. And I think that's really, really important for a lot of veterans because we get estranged from our wives, our children, our families, and there's no need to do that if we honestly take a pattern to, to as you said earlier, educate ourselves on what other reactions we're having and what other the, the things that we can do to educate ourselves to improve that. But I think it's really, really important that we, we think about our families. I, I, that would be a wonderful note to end on today. And, and promise us you'll come back because I've read your book and I want to hear more of you explain the, the travel conditions in, in South Vietnam, but some of, the, some of the really, really beautiful aspects of it geologically and, and, and the cultures, how welcoming they were. And I think I, I, I would like to end this particular session by reminding people of those two words that you close your book on. Forgiveness and love. Okay. <laughs> well, no, go ahead. You, you, you close it up for us today, John. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I just have to say that the Vietnamese people have taught me so much. And if I, I reflect on this often, that if I had to fight in a war, which was not my choice, but if I had to fight in a war, I thank God every day that it was Vietnam and not somewhere else, because I think this place is unprecedented throughout the entire world. I don't think there's a country. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful, wonderful countries with beautiful philosophies and Buddhists and Confucius theories, and even in the, the Hindu in India and so forth. But Vietnam, there's something about it and something about these people. They are just open armed. And I just thank God every day that if I had to fight in a war, it was in Vietnam because I got a chance. I probably wouldn't have never gone back there otherwise. I write my books, by the way, because I know not everybody is inclined to go back there. And that's just fine. I'm not trying to push anybody to go to Vietnam. All of my travelers that come with me are willing participants that want to go back. But if writing and reading some of the experiences that I've had in Vietnam can help you understand about these people and about the situation during the war and so forth, that's why I write it. John Wesley Fisher, what an honor to have you with us. And, and for, for those books, anyone who's interested, tell us where you'll find those books, besides at my email address, msoporban at gmail.com. You know, Amazon has all my books there, and any bookstore you go into, they may not have it on the shelf, but they can get it for you in, in, in less than a week, usually. And you can get autographed copies if you email me, and that's John Wesley Fisher info, I-N-F-O at 
gmail.com, but you can go to my website, johnwesleyfisher.com, and find a description of my books. My new book, Doctoral Remedy, is not on the website yet, but it will be shortly because it's just about ready to be released in September. Yep, and that's the book we're going to be speaking about in our next session, so they'll especially want to get that. Uh, John Wesley Fisher is J-O-H-N-W-E-S-L-E-Y-F-I-S-H-E-R. John Wesley Fisher. Go check out his books and do come back and join us again when John shares the the geographic travel of, of South Vietnam. It's really, really a fascinating story. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.